Free Food for Thought is back for 2017. This year, the podcast returns with improved sound quality made possible by the generosity of Claremont McKenna College and President Hiram Chodash, and we are incredibly grateful for that. In 2017, Free Food for Thought will continue exploring and sharing the stories of thought leaders in organic and accessible conversations, and we welcome you, the listener, to join us. We post every Monday and Thursday, and you can find those posts on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, iTunes, or our website, freefoodforthought.com. Hi guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Kate. I'm Skip, and we are very excited to have Cornell Brooks joining us here today. Cornell William Brooks is the 18th president and CEO of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. A civil rights attorney, social justice advocate, and ordained minister, Brooks upholds the mission of the NAACP to secure political, educational, social, and economic equality for all Americans. He earned a BA with honors in political science from Jackson State University, a Master of Divinity from Boston University School of Theology, where he was a Martin Luther King Jr. scholar, and a JD from Yale Law School, where he served as senior editor of the Yale Law Journal and member of the Yale Law and Policy Review. Mr. Brooks is CMC's 2017 Martin Luther King Jr. commemorative speaker. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Mr. Brooks. Uh, Kate and uh, Skip, I'm really delighted to be here. It's an honor. One of the most interesting things we've heard from all the speakers on our show before is this concept of inflection points mm. or points when you pivoted in your life, be it your personal life, your professional life. We'd like to hear some of these moments from you. Sure, sure. So I think like a, a great many uh, people in, in, you know, in, in life, you, you come to a moment where you think you're going in one direction and you end up going in, in another direction. So for me, I went to college knowing that I wanted to be a lawyer and went to hear a lecture, and the speaker that day asked three questions. Uh, the first question was, he asked, how many of you believe that this is a great country? And nearly everyone raised their hands, and he asked, well, how many of you have read the Constitution in its entirety? No one could raise their hand. Second question he asked was, how many of you believe uh, in God, this being the Deep South, the Bible Belt, yeah. nearly everyone raised their hand. He said, how many of you have read the Bible from cover to cover? No one raised their hand. And then the third question he asked was, how many of you believe that Dr. King uh, was a great man? Everyone raised their hand. He said, how many of you read all of his books, all of his sermons, and all of his essays? No one could answer the question in the affirmative. I, as a, I believe I was a sophomore in college. I felt rather ignorant. And so I resolved to read all of the works of Dr. King, all the works of uh, the Bible in its entirety and the Constitution. By doing so, that literally turned uh, my life in a different direction. Um, coming to college looking to be a lawyer, I left looking to become a lawyer and a minister because uh, reading Dr. King's works inspired me to read about uh, social ethics, systematic theology. Uh, moral philosophy, and that literally took my life in the direction of doing civil rights, at, civil rights law and litigation as ministry, and that was a change for me, huge change. 
That's fascinating. Um, so I'm really interested. We've heard a lot about your, or we both researched a lot about your career trajectory, and you've done a lot of different work over yeah. the mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious now that you're at the NAACP, what issues are personally most important to you, and that are you're really pushing to advocate there? Sure. So I came to the NAACP from a uh, small, uh, privately endowed think tank in Newark, New Jersey. I went there as a civil rights lawyer, having done fair housing, fair lending litigation never having done any work related to criminal justice. Uh, I don't think I'd ever met anyone in a gang. And I went to Newark and began doing work on prisoner reentry, uh, gangs and reentry, helping people move from gangs into uh, working lives, and really became immersed in the criminal justice system. Uh, did a, a documentary with folks in the uh, who were blood, crips, and Latin kings. And that really inspired me to look at the criminal justice system. So at the NAACP, over the course of the last two and a half years, I've gone from Ferguson to Flint to Cleveland to uh, Staten Island, dealing with these policing issues, uh, dealing with the issues of mass incarceration. So that's a really important set of issues for me at the NAACP, as well as voting rights. And uh, I'll tell you a little story. My grandfather, uh, the Reverend James Prelo, ran for Congress back in the 1940s. Uh, as an African-American in, in the low country of South Carolina. He did it not because he thought he could win, uh, but because he wanted to get African-Americans to vote after Thurgood Marshall won a case called Smith versus Allwright, which outlawed the all-white Southern Democratic primary. And so uh, what he did in the 1940s, risking his life for the right to vote, yeah, that's here we are in 2016 dealing with the same issues. Uh, and so the right to vote, voting rights, a huge part of my work at the NAACP. Absolutely. And, and in the past, you've, you've called yourself a direct beneficiary of, of Brown versus Board of Education. Um, you mentioned um, other Supreme Court cases. Mm -hmm. um, do you think today that there's room for a similarly transformative Supreme Court case? And what would that entail? Ah, yes, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, I, I certainly believe so. In terms of a, of a transformative um, civil rights case, uh, you know, I, I would say we, we need a, a case that makes clear that the voter suppression that we've seen across the country and all of its ugly Machiavellian machinations uh, are at odds with the Constitution. So in other words, these phony voter ID laws where you require a government-issued photo ID when there's no um, indication of a need to do so, meaning, meaning there's no voter fraud in this country. Uh, there's studies that show out of one billion ballots cast, 30 uh, ballots where you have an in-person uh, voter uh, fraud, as it were. That, that would be transformative in this country because almost everywhere you see voter suppression in terms of race, you almost always see it in terms of generation, meaning the war against black and brown people is a war against young people. So in places like Texas where they honor a concealed weapon permit that allows you to vote, but they won't honor a college ID. Where you move polling places off of college campuses, voter registration uh, places off of college campuses, impose fines on college students for voting. Uh, I think the Supreme Court could really uh, do some work in this area uh, in a way that would make a difference. It's interesting that you bring up those issues because one thing we're curious about is looking at kind of the Shelby County decision mm -hmm. and these other issues of police tensions with African-Americans and shootings in cities. 
What do you think progress has been during the past couple, the past eight years with the Obama administration and work? what work really still needs to be done and what can the NAACP do to get a lot of that done? Certainly. That's an excellent question. So with the election and re-election of President Obama, I think many people in this country suppose that the election and re-election of an extraordinary candidate, that it represented a movement, a presupposed movement that didn't exist. So we've seen tremendous progress in this country in terms of uh, uh, the right to vote. I mean, African-American women and millennials elected and reelected the president. Uh, a tremendous achievement. We've seen a significant progress made in terms of highlighting, emphasizing uh, the challenge of policing in this country. But a young black man is 21 times more likely to lose his life at the hands of the police than his white counterpart. We've seen nothing less than a Twitter age civil rights movement over the course of the last two and a half, three years uh, in the wake of the Trayvon Martin uh, killing. We've seen literally millions of millennials across this country rise up in a way that invokes the legacy of Rosa Parks, invokes the legacy of John Lewis, invokes the legacy of Martin Luther King or Fannie Lou Hamer. That's what we're seeing now. In fact, I tell people all the time, if you go down to the museum in Washington, the African-American Museum in Washington, and you look on the walls and you see uh, these pictures, artifacts, uh, exhibits uh, attesting to the bravery, the courage, the moral fortitude of our civil rights forebears. Here's what I would say. You go to that same museum in 15 and 20 years, 20 years from now, you may see your own picture. That's where we are. That's I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because another question we had was just about you mentioned all these these names that are now, you know, household names, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. um, all the all these names. um you know, they they had the, the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s had these such prominent leaders. Mm -hmm. And today, one maybe note um, um, to the contrary is that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, maybe mm -hmm. you don't have anyone as high profile as, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. What mm -hmm. what challenges is that presented for Black Lives Matter, NAACP, mm -hmm. any any type of social justice movement? Well, but let, 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 let's bear this in mind. Um, at the time the civil rights movement was occurring, all these folks weren't necessarily household names. Dr. King was selected to be the spokesman of the Montgomery boycott. Why? Because he was newest to town, had a PhD, was at a fairly prominent church, and people concluded if this whole thing goes south and blows up, he can remake his life. The rest of us have to stay here. So that's why he was chosen. Uh, similarly, Rosa Parks, I think a fascinating story. Rosa Parks was active in the, in the NAACP, sat down in the bus in Montgomery. But 10 years before that, she stood up for a black woman who was sexually assaulted by a group of uh, uh, racial uh, vigilantes. This was a black woman who was just doing the right thing at the right time. And the world took notice. Here's my point. Right now, we have millions of young leaders across the country doing the right thing at the right time, and the world is beginning to take note. Think about the, the young people in Ferguson. Were it not for their, their courage, using their mobile devices and phones and capturing Michael Brown's body on the, on the pavement for four mm -hmm. hours, they literally put, put Michael Brown's name on Barack Obama's lips in Switzerland. They did that. So I'm simply saying we don't know, you know, uh, 20 years from now, people may be talking about uh, Skip and Kate as civil rights leaders. You don't know that. 
because the moment that you're in right now, we're all busy doing the work. Right. And and those who have the most integrity aren't worried about the degree to which they get noticed doing the work. They're just doing the work. That's a wonderful point. Interesting that you bring up so much of the grassroots stuff. I've been Mm -hmm. really curious. Again, the NAACP is such a huge organization. Mm-hmm. How do you balance out all the grassroots stuff that goes on and all the local stuff with the big heavy things of fighting for legislation in the in Congress or fighting for Supreme Court nominees or cases in the Supreme Court? How do you balance all those different interests? Because they're, they're in fact, tied together. So, for example, when we push for a, a legislative fix to the badly broken Voting Rights Act in the wake of Shelby versus Holder, right? So we're pushing for a piece of legislation called the Voting Rights Advancement Act in Congress. We lobby, we talk to uh, senators and representatives, we have public education campaigns, but it's tied to grassroots advocacy. So uh, in 2015, we did a march from Selma, Alabama to Washington, D.C., 1,002 miles over 40 some odd days. We're going through all these little towns across five states. We're talking to people, we're engaging people, we're sleeping in church basements and in, in synagogues. Why? Because we're building a movement. So in other words, the grassroots advocacy is tied to the Washington lobbying and advocacy. And in fact, when you look at the the model of the NAACP, we're most successful not when we uh, get into the New York Times, but when we get into the local paper. So, for example, when we were arrested at Senator Sessions' office a few weeks ago, we made the local paper, um, but our our mugshots were in the New York Times. But I found out on Twitter that my my mugshot made the uh, local, uh, what I call him, a mugshot tabloid called Busted, <laughs> right? And so there's Cornell Shot. William Brooks in yeah. the, the local tabloid that says Busted in, in my picture. Here's my point. What we're trying to do is say to people that this civil rights movement that you're in is your civil rights movement. It's not about the folks in Washington. It is about the folks in your hometown, in your college, on your campus, um, in your community. And if we do that, we succeed. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up that um, protest that you did in, in Senator Sessions district office um, mm-hmm. in Alabama. Um, how how did you how do you think that that went down? Do you think that that went as, as well as you you hoped? Um, you mentioned that it had a mixed mixture of both local coverage and national coverage. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you think that went? So, I, I frankly, it went down a lot better than we could have imagined, meaning we planned that in like in, in seven days. Right. We we had a, a press conference outside, simultaneous press conferences around uh, the state. We knew that the hearing, uh, the nomination of Senator Sessions was coming up, and we did not plan on having 100 people arrested, so we wanted to have like a handful. And we did that, and, and I'm, I want to give credit to where credit is due. Uh, my young staffer said, let's put it all on Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. So we had a half million viewers on Facebook right. Live. Uh, the the mugshots, frankly, that uh, those were sent to me by my young staffers, and I said, you know what, they're going to use these mugshots to embarrass us. Rather than embarrass us, let's take credit for it. So we tweeted it out and sent it to the New York Times and the Washington Post. And my colleagues say that that arrest jump-started the nominations fight. And so now if you look on Twitter, on, uh, on Facebook, you're seeing hundreds and hundreds of, I mean, thousands of posts, people, we're shutting down phone lines. Uh, people are really up in arms. In fact, we did a video with the president of Greenpeace, Annie Leonard. She and I took, uh, did a video with us in the uh, pink pussycat hats. 
Uh, now, that's not my finest sartorial moment, but um, we did that because we want to make clear that all of the women who attended the Women's March in Washington and around the country and around the world, we cannot countenance, we can't get behind a attorney general nominee who's consistently voted against uh, hate crime protection extended to women. Right. Uh, we need an attorney general who's going to prosecute cases on behalf of the whole of the country. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that that effort in Mobile was grassroots. We had local folks involved. And it's my belief that let us not underestimate the power of our citizenry. Right? Let's, uh, let's not underestimate ourselves. Uh, we, we don't have a huge lobbying budget, mm. but here's what I know. When you ask about the arrest in Mobile, they're now running ads, campaign-style ads for, for Senator Sessions around the country, blue states and red states. I don't know if they'd be doing that if they thought they were winning. That's a really good point. Uh, on the subject of the Women's March in Washington, sure. I thought that was an absolutely fascinating protest that kind of spun out. And it was really interesting to see how many people from campus went out to L.A. to go mm -hmm. to that and all over the country. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on how we can take the Women's March from being just with protests just the day after the election to being a sustained mo movement for overall political change in the coming years? Excellent. So I, I think it has everything to do with having both a defensive agenda and an affirmative agenda. So there's certain policies in terms of the Trump administration that we need to oppose, but there are also certain values we need to affirm. And so I think it's critical that uh, our colleagues in the Justice League, Planned Parenthood, National Resources Defense Council, NAACP, ACLU, uh, the Democracy Initiative, that we take those demonstrators into our ranks, talk about specific policy reforms, and motivate, inspire, instruct, and deploy them out to make change, not just in Congress, but back home. So here's, here's what we know. In North Carolina, when they passed the so-called bathroom bill, uh, that, now that's not only anti-LGBTQ, it's also anti-labor, anti-civil rights, because that means those local towns in North Carolina were prohibited from passing any form of civil rights legislation. Yeah. Okay, And so what I'm saying is, what happens when... Women leave the Women's March, men leave the Women's March, go back to North Carolina, South Carolina, California, uh, Idaho, Ohio, and start focusing on local reform using the tools that they acquired that day and, and, and also the expanded moral vision. So in other words, when you look out and you see a sea of pink hats, you see, like I, I was on a train coming back from New York at 2 o'clock in the morning with mothers, daughters, granddaughters, I suspect some great-granddaughters, on a yeah. packed train coming into Union Station, D.C. Now, when you see that, that says this is what we're capable of as a country. Mm. And where you see uh, people of every hue and heritage across the country, around the world, this says to us what we're capable of. And so uh, we just have to turn it into micro action. Absolutely. Um, so we've got, unfortunately, time for one more question. Sure. And it's a question we like to ask each of our guests. And the mm -hmm. question is, what is your personal definition of success? And what advice would you give students in defining success for themselves? Mm -hmm. My definition of success would be the degree to which all of us listen and hear our own 
calling in the world and answer it. Your, your, your place in this world is largely defined by the degree to which you listen to a, a, a voice of conscience and conviction within and you answer it. And what I found over and over again is that the students, young professionals, older professionals who, who feel like they are doing what they were put on this earth to do, those are the people that are the most happy, are the happiest, the most uh, fulfilled, and the ones who tend to be the most successful, even in the traditional sense. That is the degree to which you do what you set out to do. People who are simply trying to live up and live into somebody else's model uh, tend to fail. Uh, those who don't bring in, bring to the task to their work a sense of uh, vocational aspiration tend to fail. On the other hand, when you show up every day knowing, you know what, I'm doing what I was called to do. And I, you know, I get up every day. Uh, it's challenging. You know, this, this job is not, um, not without risk, but I love it. Absolutely love it. Why? Because I, I feel like I was called to do it. Thank you so much for that. Unfortunately, this is all the time we have for today. Thank you again for joining us, Mr. Brooks. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'm delighted to be uh, here on Free Food for Thought. And I will take Free Food for Thought with me in my travels as inspiration. Excellent to hear. Thank you and so much. to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.